The poison of corporate controlled information is pervasive within the American media landscape, which makes the Laura Flanders show one of the most important places that we can go to understand how power works, the reality around us, and how to resist. This is Chris Hedges, and I listen to The Laura Flanders Show. Go to patreon.com forward slash The LF Show and become a member. Hi, I'm Laura, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Over the last few years, we've all seen a doubling down on the immigrants as problem story. Migrants have been accused of bringing everything from gang violence and crime to disease to the United States, and of course, of stealing our jobs. Reformers often play into their own version of the problem narrative, emphasizing the tragic circumstances that drive people to leave their home country while leaving out the role the U.S. played in those stories. This time on The Laura Flanders Show, Latinx Americans whose work flies in the face of that version of the story. I'll speak with MacArthur Genius Award winner Cristina Jimenez, co-founder of United We Dream. She'll talk about how a different generation is experiencing both the good and the bad of immigration activism. Then we'll visit an organization in one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the United States where immigrants are empowering other immigrants and their neighbors to fight for safe working conditions for everyone and a whole lot more. But first, a deep dive with award-winning reporter Roberto Lovato into the history of the U.S.'s cruel proxy wars in Central America. In his new memoir, Unforgetting, Lovato writes about the Washington government's role in those wars and the men like Bill Barr who played a role in them. Lovato is also coming out for the first time about what drove him to join El Salvador's guerrilla army, and he draws some lessons for all aspiring changemakers. I wanted to discover the things that my family had hidden. I wanted to understand what El Salvador has been trying to hide for decades about itself, about its government, about its military. And I also wanted to discover what the United States' secrets are, because we don't know most of us, the role that the United States played because they supported the longest standing military dictatorship in Latin American history. Many people perhaps remember that during the Iraq war, there was the emergence of something that was called the torture memo or the torture manual that il illustrated how to conduct waterboarding. And I was reminded reading your book that that too had its roots in the Central American Wars. Nefarious, but also a lot of noble things have their roots in El Salvador and Central America. On the nefarious side, you have um, the torture manuals that came out of Guatemala, El Salvador, um, and then influenced policing and military in Honduras. You have you know, support for military dictatorships, training death squad operatives out of the School of the Americas, there's still an organization called School of the Americas Watch because the School of the Americas became the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security. The U.S. has a whole history of exporting its models of counterinsurgency through policing, through the militaries, and mass-producing trauma, speaking of what part of the 
theory of counterinsurgency is that you want to instill terror in the population so that people don't get involved. So you just don't kill people, but you kill them in the most horrific visual ways so that it discourages people to you know, rise up. It failed in El Salvador because one of every three of us was organized against the state during the war, according to a study by the Universidad Centroamericana. And so um, that's, and that's kind of the noble side and the good side of El Salvador's story uh, and its influence on the US as well, where you have this hyper-politicized, extremely capable uh, people's movement that the CIA said was among the most effective in the 20th century in Latin America, exporting its model <laughs> to the United States through the refugees. And, and this informed like immigrant rights, you know, the topic we're here to kind of talk about it. A lot of immigrant rights activists were not just activists, they were cadre and revolutionary organizations who were highly prepared to organize churches, universities, and other sectors of US society that they had mapped out and acted upon. I myself was exposed to them and I was like, wow. And I decided to join. Do you remember what the aspirations were that you had at that moment? What was your idea of what you were fighting for? Uh, saw things in the countryside of El Salvador that I would wish upon no human being to see. Yeah. Uh, things I don't need to go into detail. Let's just say that you're talking about children being massacred and killed in the worst possible ways. Like I discovered that my government of the United States, my tax dollars were paying for the bayonets that destroyed children for the bombs, the death squads that eventually ended up pursuing me, by the way. Um, being exposed to this, I got really, quite frankly, angry. And I decided I wanted to do something more than just do humanitarian service work. I wanted to help dismantle. And so I had some friends introduce me to uh, urban commando units in, in the country. And they then trained me and had me working on logistics with them to secure the material that would help sabotage military installations, uh, electric, you know, installations and other strategic uh, locations of a strategic nature. You titled the book Unforgetting, and that's a specific choice. It's different from remembering. Um, can you distinguish for us what the difference is? Unforgetting is a of what I would call what we call in America Latina memoria historica, historical memory, which is the use of memory in the pursuit of justice. Popular phrase in in my view at least in Salvadoran literature in Salvadoran literature poetry is todos nacimos medio muertos en 1932. We were all born half dead in 1932. I heard that as a kid, but I didn't really understand what it meant. And as an adult, I came to realize how powerful Roque Dalton, the poet, guerrilla fighter, who came up with that, was in sharing that with us. And it just resonates with my bones even to this day. Because you have this feeling, not what I imagine it's like to be Jewish, for example, and being an inheritor of the tragic legacy of violence against the Jews that includes, but is not limited to, the Holocaust. In the same way, Salvadorans, even before La Matanza, have a whole history of extreme violence in one of the most consistently violent countries on earth. And so to, to kind of get at that un, untold history was an act of mental, spiritual health, but also a political act that starts to 
look at the secrets of not just El Salvador and its death squads and military, but of the U.S. government, the U.S. policing, the U.S. justice system that enabled the extreme violence in the modern history of El Salvador. If this unforgetting is an act of healing for you, what do the rest of us need to do? I don't even blink when I tell you that unforgetting is a necessary thing, not just for Salvadorans, but for people in the United States and people all over the world. If you live in a nation state, and we all do, uh, you, you necessarily live in, 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 a, in a border, within a border of forgetting, because that's what borders are. They're, they're the ways to forget the interconnectedness. They're the ways of forgetting the crimes of nations. So to deal with these intersecting crises, and it is possible with humanity's brilliance to do something about it, we're going to need something beyond liberal and progressive ideology and practice. I think the Obama presidency is a monument to the failure of liberal ideals. And to those who remember that when Barack Obama came into office with Joe Biden, his word was that he would let bygones be bygones. We would move on. What's your message to those people? My message to them is, sorry, dude. We've documented the history. We've told it as beautifully as possible. And we are legion. There's a ferocious generation of young Central Americans and Salvadorans and others who are committed not to, for, to, to unforgetting the act of excavating the heart lost in the darkness of lies, myths, half-truths, and politicians who want us to simply push the genocidal crimes against humanity of the United States, its elected officials, its military, under the rug of forgotten history. It's too late. We've burst the dam of silence and forgetting. And we're, it's a new day for Central Americans in the United States and in Central America. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. I was just talking with Roberto Lovato, an award-winning journalist and author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas. In the book, he shares a forgotten and very personal perspective on the Central American wars that the U.S. fought in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s. They are, as he puts it, one of the most important yet least understood humanitarian crises of our time. You're listening to our special Unforget Dream Build on Latinx Americans and the heavy lifting immigrants are doing, changing the narrative on immigration from the prevailing problem story to one about policy reform and potential and building infrastructure in face of ICE crackdowns and COVID-19. You can watch this special at our website, lauraflanders.org, and see all the players in action. And while you're there, be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to keep up on all our online exclusives and more. Next, MacArthur Genius Award winner and co-founder of United We Dream, Cristina Jimenez joins me to share how a different generation is experiencing both the good and the bad of immigration activism. Then we visit an organization in one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the U.S., where immigrants are empowering one another and their neighbors to fight for safe working conditions for all. But first, here's Black Moon by Calibro 35, featuring May from their album Momentum, released on Record Kicks. Beauty lacks a clear kingdom. All of this shine is the symptom. Ready more than ready for this rhythm. 
keep our cars close, keep them here done Navigate streets, do they murky? Never stop, cause our enemies are thirsty And survive off the power that's within we Only rations, but we never run on empty Never underestimate a moon We can show you only half a June Even show up in the sky at noon Filling up the room, hidden face like doom Now we're hoping that the sun will come up So we're visible and no longer stuck Staying ready for this thing to erupt Coming for the corrupt, power shift is abrupt Cross into my town and be cautious Land of the lawless As we leave you lingering for less until you're nauseous Hope that you ain't porous, soaking up a chorus When you're done with apathy, then say you up a chorus Nothing here is for us, I'll be good and ready Set that universal credit, getting rough for heady It's survival of the richest and the rich already The lyrics I'm acting on, I'm cooking music If it's a new day for immigrants in the U.S. from any part of the world, it's because they are turning histories of trauma and resistance into fuel for making change. They unforget, then dream. They dream, then build. Cristina Jimenez is co-founder and former executive director of United We Dream. She was instrumental in advocating for DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, the executive order signed by President Obama in 2012 that enabled thousands of undocumented youth to live without fear of deportation, including Christina. Like many immigrants, my parents and our family made the difficult choice to come to this country in seek of a better life. We were in Ecuador, where I was born, in the city of Quito. And in the 1990s, the country was going through political and economic turmoil. Millions of people lost jobs. There were strikes that paralyzed the country for days. And my parents were many of the millions of Ecuadorians that lost their jobs. Where did they come to? So we uh, came uh, to New York and we settled in Queens uh, in 1998. And this dream of making sure that their kids could go to school and that I could get an education, be the first one in the family to graduate from college became my dream too, Laura. I experienced and our family experienced a lot of contradictions right away with my parents being abused in the workplace and employers refusing to pay their wages because they were undocumented or, you know, my brother being a stop and frisk by NYPD when he was only 12 years old and feeling often that I was treated differently because of my accent and also because of the color of my skin. But, you know, I'm trying to focus on honoring my parents' sacrifices and doing my best to go to college. But 9-11 happened when I was still in college. And 9-11 really deepened my sense of consciousness about what it meant to be a person of color and an immigrant in this country. For those of us who were here in New York, not only it was painful to see all the lives that were taken in a very traumatic event, but also how the government treated immigrants after, including in New York, NYPD, the police was deployed all over the city. They were given the right to question anyone that may look suspicious, which, you know, that really meant people of color and Muslim immigrants. And also this is the moment within our communities, you know, and at least what I remember as a teenager at that time, I start hearing more deportations happening in the community. And this is quite frankly what opened my pathways to getting uh, involved in community organizing because I met young people like myself who had come with their families, grown up in this country, and because of the policies implemented after 9-11, 
for example, a registration program for Muslim young men led to people like Kamala Saheb, who was a college student at the time, to be put under deportation proceedings. Mm. It was the stories like the one of Kamal and Marie Gonzalez from Kansas, and also Walter Barrientos, who was a college friend at the time, and you know now we're life partners. He was also caught in a post-9-11 regime that went after uh, immigrants. Walter was detained in an Amtrak train and uh, put in deportation proceedings right away. So all of these experiences really not only intensify the fear in immigrant communities, but for me and many others, it also fuel our desire to fight back. Are the things you have to teach in your community that, that might help the rest of us as we think about the right to move in a whole sort of different way? The pain that many people in this country are feeling right now, it's something that undocumented immigrants have lived with every day of their lives. And I think that the most important lesson that we can all really hold on to is how this pandemic has shown us that regardless of where we come from, regardless of where we are, and regardless of where we live, we depend on one another to, to survive this pandemic and quite frankly, to figure out a way to build up from the devastating impact of this pandemic. You know, just as I think about the fact that many of us could still have food during this pandemic because we have courageous farm workers who are working to ensure that Americans are fed in the midst of the pandemic or that we could have meat in our diets well, we have meatpacking plant workers is still working. And, you know, unfortunately, in not the appropriate conditions. A lot of these mutual aid funds have shown us that regardless of what country we come from and regardless of whether we were born here or first or second generation immigrant, we're coming together to support one another. And I think that those are some of the best expressions of our shared humanity. And quite frankly, what should uh, give us a lot to be inspired about for how we want to build the country moving forward. We're talking about the joy and the struggle, but things are pretty scary outside of our rooms and, and especially outside of the rooms of the people that you work with. What message do you have for people who are seeking still to stop deportations, to reunite families, to make this country, as you said, what it could be even in these times? Elections certainly shape uh, who's making decisions that are impacting our lives directly. But the work to really win justice for all people, regardless of the color of our skin and where we come from, is day-to-day -day work. And that is the work of organizing. And the elections do not start our work or do not end our work. Because when an election ends, it is about holding those that have been elected accountable. And to continue to build that community grassroots power to hold people accountable, but to also be ready to push for the policies and the changes, the structural changes that we want to be able to see in this country. Because ultimately, what we are really up against, as we saw and have experienced in the last couple of years, is that why supremacy and why nationalism are real. And we just need to confront that truth. From my perspective, the most fun part uh, comes about now because we are about to create the pressure and the conditions so that our demands are met. That's not to say that with one policy, we're going to get rid of white supremacy, but it does mean that we can push for policies that are going to get us closer to that vision. And quite frankly, to me, 
the work is in the power of the movements that we're going to push uh, these administrations and these governments to serve the people uh, and to and to do right by the people. What does that work look like on the ground and how do organizers meet the immediate needs of immigrant communities in crisis even as they push for long-term policy change? We visit new immigrant community empowerment in Jackson Heights, Queens for an example. Jackson Heights is one of the most diverse communities in New York City and one of the most diverse communities in the country. It is a place where immigrants come to make a living. It is a place where every block is, is a different country, a different part of the world, where um, everywhere you go, you'll hear a different language, uh, different smells of food from around the world. It's a beautiful place. My name is Diana Moreno. I'm the program director here at New Immigrant Community Empowerment in Jackson Heights, Queens. Our particular location in the heart of Jackson Heights close to the 69th Street Parada or Day Laborer Corner um, really pushed us to evolve to cater towards uh, this undocumented community that we saw as incredibly vulnerable uh, that essentially tried to sell their labor on a street corner for the lowest bidder usually and they are exposed to many potential labor violations. NICE supports workers um, in sort of a hybrid model of both um, being a service organization and really a space for community organizing. So not only are we there to help educate workers around OSHA, right, the, the safe and healthy uh, classes that they need in order to even try to get a job in construction, uh, give them, giving them uh, uh, opportunities to uh, improve their English, understand how Google Maps work so they can get around the city. Those sort of like very, very foundational uh, information that you need as a new immigrant in the city of New York, but also that uh, higher level 40-hour classes that lead to a certification, right? Those are the types of services that we provide, referrals and also um, assessorias, which means uh, advice whenever they are victims of wage theft, uh, 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 discrimination based on gender, discrimination based on age or, um, or immigration status, which is actually a protected classification here in New York City. We help guide workers to how do I deal with this violation of my own rights? But first, we have to educate them on what those rights are and let them know that, no, just because you are here undocumented, that does not mean that someone gets to take advantage of you. Inez Arivalo, member of NICE. Coming to NICE was definitely a boon. When I started working in construction, I met a group of people that didn't offer job security. They didn't pay you overtime or a fair wage. Simply put, the work was exploitation. I suffered labor exploitation and also discrimination for being a woman. So that was one of the hardest challenges. I had to commit and work harder to succeed and to get a better job and to be able to get into a company where you have insurance, where you have a living wage, where you are respected, where you are considered. But to get to that process, I had to go through so many difficult and precarious situations. All of that made me stronger in the end. So I saw the necessity to help other people, other women. And the only channel I found to do that was NICE. So I said, I'm going to help. 
I'm going to talk with other women who are busy and who are in need of work and show them that you can do something in construction that isn't just cleaning. So we started having talks with Maritza and other girls that worked with NICE and started giving talks to promote women's education and the essential principle that you can do it, that we have the strength to do it and we can succeed. So I tried to be an example for them because just to talk about it and tell them, yes, you can do it or look at this or do this is one thing. But when you get there and say, this is what I've achieved with this effort and this work, it's different because you speak with your actions. We actually do work side by side with construction uh, unions because we know that in the end, we are all workers, and in the end, it really is uh, the standard of the, of the lowest paid worker that is the floor over which all other workers uh, are treated and are paid. So we are grateful that we actually have evolved our, our, um, our relationship with labor unions. Our Centro de Trabajadores, our Worker Center, is the heart of our organization. However, right now, during the pandemic, it's really become our Centro de Acopio, a center of food distribution and mutual aid. Juan Nolasco, Workforce Skills Instructor for NICE. Right now, what was the Worker Center at NICE has turned into a sort of bodega for the distribution of food, since the community needs a lot of support from NICE. Every day we see a lot of people here from all corners of the world coming to get some help with food. Luis Francois, member and volunteer, NICE. We come early to prepare bags and boxes to share food with the community because we are all human beings. After the COVID-19 pandemic, mutual aid organizations popped up to help one another um, survive these really difficult times. And undocumented immigrants who were ineligible for the federal stimulus aid, who are ineligible for a lot of different state programs that are helping people throughout the pandemic, we had to come together because we're all we've got. Juan Nolasco. On Fridays, we continue to offer some classes as a kind of apprenticeship for house painting and plumbing, or at least an introduction to plumbing, and an introduction to what's called framing. Something that we um, always have to contend with is this narrative that um, immigrants are, are takers, right? We're, we're a drain in society, we're, you know, taking up spaces in, in public schools, we are um, taking advantage of, uh, you know, public services or um, taking jobs from, from Americans, right? So, so this narrative that also I think is used by sort of well-meaning folks that may be progressive, may be pro-immigrant by like, oh no, we should help this population, you know, they need... Uh, you know, just they sort of need our help. I think that the narrative is so so backward and wrong and upside down because really it is this country that needs immigrants. If immigrants suffer, everyone else suffers. We know that their labor is essential. We know the city of New York depends on that labor, not just to build their skyscrapers, but to clean the, the, the MTA subways at night during the COVID pandemic, to clean and serve in the restaurants and deliver all the food that all the people that were able to stay home um, are, are getting and are eating during this pandemic. So it's important for us to understand and, and teach uh, the society at large that really the, the health of our society depends on the health of our immigrant siblings. 
You can find a link to watch this special, Unforget Dream Build, and to find links to related episodes on Latinx and immigrant power in our research and reading list, posted at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's also where you can make a difference by becoming a monthly supporter of this program. If every one of our dedicated forward-thinking listeners like you committed just $3 a month, we'd have what we need to keep on doing the reporting we're doing on solutions, change-making, and forward-thinking. There's never been a more important time for that than right now. Go to patreon.com forward slash the LF show. This episode was produced by yours truly, Laura Flanders, Matt Colicello, Jeremiah Cothran, Charlotte Carpenter, Nat Needham, Jeannie Hopper, Dominic Marcella, Mercedes Crostiaga, Ryan Holtz, Rory O'Connor, and David Newman. Major funding for this program is provided by the Novo, Tomcat, Cloud Mountain, Fonda, Park, Shift Tides, and the Poss Family Foundation, as well as listeners like you. And from the entire team here at The Laura Flanders Show, thank you. You truly are the wind at our backs. We could not do this without you. Stay kind. Stay curious. I'm Laura. <laughs>